0: Hi, everybody. I'm Grant Fishbook, and I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham. I wanna thank you for accessing this online content. We're so glad that you've decided to watch this message today. And one of our values here at Christ the King is biblical community. And so I just wanna encourage you uh, and remind you that while we are glad that you are accessing this content, this is absolutely no replacement for face-to-face biblical community wherever you happen to be. If you happen to be in our area, we would love to welcome you to any one of our five campuses. But if you're watching this somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to find a biblical community where you can both give and receive as you continue your journey with Jesus. It's nice to be home, to the humidity and the warmth. I love the rain, and it's just good to be back with you again. I always miss you guys when I'm gone, and so it's always nice to be able to come back home again. I prayed and asked God for a powerful way to kick off a brand new series, and then I prayed and researched, researched and prayed, looking for a hook, looking for a story, looking for something to try and capture your imagination so that you would stick with me for the next four weeks as we walk through some some what can be some difficult type of material, and I and researched, researched and prayed, and I got nothing. Absolutely nothing. So let's just dive straight in. Let's take a walk through scripture. We're going to start in the city of Athens, the center of Greek thought and Greek commerce a couple of thousand years ago. In Athens, the smartest of the smart and the business uh, minds of the world met together, and they were always there discussing philosophy and expanding their minds. And the apostle Paul The most prolific missionary and evangelist in human history shows up, makes his way through the neighborhoods, stops at the Jewish synagogue, ends up picking a fight. You should read your Bible. happens over and over and over again because he's preaching about Jesus. And then he goes to the marketplace where life happens. Now, when you think marketplace, don't think Bella's Fair Mall. Because the marketplace was a place of business and commerce, but it was also so much more than that. It's where you got your world news. It's where you exchanged ideas. It's where you experienced the latest developments in art and philosophy and war and conquest and civics and ethics. The marketplace was the hub of the city. And around this marketplace was the city of Athens. Great thought, great spirituality. To this day, if you go to Athens, the city is covered in ancient idols. That represented Greek and Roman mythology. And not only were there a lot of smart people there, there were a lot of spiritual people there. And in the middle of that hustle and bustle, this passionate little preacher shows up, and the Bible tells us what happens in Acts chapter 17. The Bible says while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And then Scripture says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Okay, let's just stop for a second and talk about the audience of Acts chapter 17. The Bible tells us there was a group of Epicureans there, okay? Epicureans were relativists, okay? In the Epicurean mind, truth was relative. You got to define it as you saw fit. Morality was relative. You got to experiment with it as you saw fit. Life was relative. You got to live it as you saw fit. There were no absolutes. So you could just make up your own. And each one did what was right in his own eyes. That was the apex of Epicurean thought. And these guys lived that philosophy to the excess. Okay, They believed you should seek happiness through pleasure and hedonism. Okay? Their message was simple, if you got an urge, follow it, follow it, do what feels good, do what you want, to who you want, when you want, and call it good. Now the natural outcome of Epicurean thought was they believed that sexual freedom was the apex of human experience. So for them, life was all about sex, pursuing sex, enjoying sex. They thought it was the most pleasurable human experience, so you should treat yourself to it as often as you could. Those of you that were a part of the flower children generation, you got nothing on the Epicureans, okay? They experienced free love before free love was both cool and groovy. And if you don't know what those words mean, you should Google it, okay? All right. They also had no regard for an afterlife. There's nothing after death. That's what they believed. It just stopped right there. So what was the natural motto of the Epicurean brain? It was simple. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Makes sense, okay? Question for you, even though this is several thousand years old, has anyone else in the room run into that type of thinking anywhere, locally? where everything is relative and you can define truth any way you want to and you can experience anything that you want to because you get to define your own morality and your own truth. Has anybody else run into that kind of thinking locally, possibly in a city called Bellingham? Just asking. So Paul starts off talking to the party crowd. Standing in the same audience at the opposite end of the spectrum was a group known as the Stoics. Okay? Epicureans, relativists. Stoics, they were moralists. Okay? Epicureans, they were hedonists. The Stoics were prudes. I don't know how else to tell it to you. Okay? According to Stoic philosophy, you find happiness in serene detachment. You just detach yourself from your life. You find a place of calm reflection. You center yourself there and you detach. And you mostly detach from the pleasures that are evil in nature. And you find meaning in doing good and following the rules. So for a stoic, you check the right boxes, play by the rules, established by the group of people who are actually leading this particular movement. Ultimately, they said this, you just be a good boy, be a good girl, and take pride in the fact that you're resisting your urges. Do you see the difference and the diversity in the crowd that day? Now, they would say one more thing. You also need to understand this. Emotion's bad, so you also need to disconnect from feelings and urges, hence the term stoic, right? You put on your poker face, you detach, and you don't feel, you just do. For the record, stoics would have hated me. They just would have hated me because they would have seen my emotion as an attachment to my feelings, and good stoic men are not supposed to cry right? So they would say, just detach. When it comes to the end of life, don't sweat it because the afterlife is actually defined by you. There was no defined end. You just kind of lived by the Stoic motto, which the Epicureans would have said, eat, drink, and be merry. The Stoics would have said, just suck it up. Don't feel, just do what you're supposed to do. It's interesting. Last night, I I preached this same thing, and I made mention, like, the Epicureans are kind of like Bellingham, and the Stoics are kind of like (laughs) I didn't say it. You thought it, so don't write me a letter, all right? I'm just saying. But it's into the middle of that kind of audience that Paul jumps and starts preaching Jesus. Like, that's crazy stuff. The Bible goes on. It says, some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then comes this famous passage. Some of you have probably heard it before. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, which was a religious council, and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Now I want you to notice something here. Paul's talking with a group of people that are antagonistic to his position, but he starts with something positive. He finds a place where he can commend them. I'm not just a positive thinking advocate. I'm just telling you, some of you on your Facebook pages need to take a lesson from Paul. Because I'm going to ask you a question. How well are you doing putting vinegar out there to every person you're trying to win, right? Could it be that we need to actually find a place of common ground? Maybe something we should pay attention to. Paul commends them for being religious. He says, you want to worship you want to figure out what life is all about. You are trying to pursue something. Well, I'm going to tell you what that unknown something is. And then Paul uses what's right in front of him, a piece of the real world that's screaming for an explanation. I mean, there's this huge idol that says to an unknown God, he says he's unknown, but I'm going to tell you who exactly that God is. He addresses idolatry in, in a profound but thoughtful sort of way. i tell you what. Has anybody else noticed? I'm really, really good at pointing out idols in somebody else's life. I just don't do really good when it comes to pointing them out in my own. Paul then actually uses Athenian thought, Greek philosophy, and common neighborhood language to introduce Jesus into the conversation. He makes a case for Jesus And that's where I ran into something in this section of Scripture that I had never seen before. I'm not actually going to preach how Paul talks to the Epicureans and the Stoics. I'm going to take you to a place where I got captured by a sentence, and it's been bugging me for about six months. And now I'm going to welcome you into my pain. Here's what Paul says to the Epicureans and the Stoics. The God who made the world. Everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. This is the sentence that just grabbed me. By the heart. I hope you underline it, that you circle it, because we're going to be spending some time developing it for the next couple of weeks. And the Bible says this And he determined, so the God of the universe determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Let's just go back for a second. Let me go, let's just stop, okay? The God who made everything. The sovereign God of the universe, the God of every detail, the God who knows the number of hairs on your head or lack thereof, the God who knows the number of salmon swimming in the Nooksack right at this second, the one who knows the number of grass blades on your lawn, every single that God who's all powerful and all sovereign picked your geographic location. He chose your address. And let me tell you why. Verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Did you get that? That just kind of melted in my brain. The God of everything put you in a strategic geographic location for a purpose, and I would submit to you it's not so you can just take up space and pay taxes. We're just going to camp there for a little while. This is going to seem remedial to some of you. Awesome. When you capture this idea 100% or are fully obedient to it, then we'll move on. I grew up in three neighborhoods. I grew up in a neighborhood where every morning I would turn up... uh, A television show and a really nice man in a really nice sweater invited me to be his neighbor (laughs) with the words, It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? And I would say, Yes. (laughs) Yes, Mr. Rogers, I want to be your neighbor. I just want you to get rid of that freaky king puppet because that just totally freaked me out. I'm just saying. I grew up in that neighborhood. I also grew up in another neighborhood. Sunny day, sweeping the clouds away, on my way to where the air is sweet. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to? Ah, some of you remember. You just dated yourself, just so you know. Come and play, everything's a okay friendly neighbors there, that's where we meet. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? And I loved that neighborhood, except for the Count, he freaked me out for some reason too. Grew up with Mr. Rogers, grew up on Sesame Street. Grew up on Silverbirds Drive with an amazing group of neighbors, the Badgley's, the Bailey's, the Fishbooks, the Glens, and the Margets. five houses in a row. That was my little neighborhood. We grew up and did life together. Mr. Glenn from next door, he was actually a biologist at the local university. He called me Fred. I have no idea why. <laughs> he called my sister Dorothy. I don't know why. Her name's Karen. But we had that kind of connection. When we rebuilt our fence, I remember my mom telling my dad, you can build the fence between us and the Baileys, here's the deal. You will put a gate so that, Mr. and Mrs., so that Mr. and Mrs. Bailey and I, we can walk back and forth unimpeded because they had that much of a connection and that much of a friendship. Mr. Bailey was a scientist. He was a soil researcher. He also had the biggest biceps I've ever seen in my life. Hulk Hogan had nothing on Mr. Bailey. Mrs. Bailey was a nurse. She was the neighborhood's second mom. Mr. Margetts owned the local McDonald's for a little while, which was really good because it meant if a neighborhood kid showed up, free fries. It was just a good thing. I remember one time sliding down our wooden banisters. We had uh, two stories, like all houses in Manitoba, basement, main floor. We had two wooden banisters, and as a kid, I used to be able to just stick my hands on each side and slide on down. As the bl- uh, banisters got a little bit older, I remember sliding down one time, I got to the bottom, I felt something funny, I looked at my hand, and I had about a three and a half inch splinter impaled through the center of my finger. And I looked at that, and that's not good. (laughs) Ran upstairs, mom, dad, mom and dad aren't home. First reaction, go to the neighbors, ran over to Mrs. Bailey, knocked on the door, she's not home run to the next house, Mr. Badgley, who was the local electronics teacher at Vincent Massey High School. And Mr. Bailey, or sorry, Mr. Mr. Badgley looked at my finger and he goes, that's not good, Grant. I'm like, that's true. He goes, here's what we're going to do. That needs to come out. I'm going to count to three and pull. And I learned a great parental rule. He went, one, two, It hurts less when you're not expecting it, just saying. From Silver Birch in Brandon, Manitoba, to my college dorm, to Mackenzie Drive in Steinbach, Manitoba, to our first house, 564 Wilson Street, to the Hatley Road in Everson, thanks to Butch and Polly Quam, and then to Quonson Drive in Linden, every single one of those locations was hand-selected by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God so that people, would seek Him and perhaps reach out to Him and find Him even though He's not far from any of us. I don't know why it never occurred to me before. I just never thought that my address was important to God, ever. I thought I lived where I lived because that's where I wanted to live or that's what I could afford. Now stick with me, okay? We, we, we've, we've come a long way. We started in Athens several thousand years ago. Now we've taken a tour through parts of Canada and ended up back here in Whatcom County. Stick with me. We're going to add a couple of other voices to our conversation today because in another part of Scripture, a very smart religious man comes to Jesus and asks a question of all the commandments, which one's the greatest one? Listen to the response of Jesus as he says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let's stop there for a second. Because most of us go, I, of course I'm doing that. Absolutely. I can do that. I love God with my whole heart. Unless, of course, my, my heart's captured by something else for just a minute or two. I love Him with my whole soul. Unless, of course, my soul gets a little fixated on fear, because, I mean, if you've read the headlines these days, it's just a little freaky out there. I I love God with my whole mind all of the time, unless, of course, I'm distracted by something. Squirrel, right? That's just kind of how it goes. And I love Him with my entire strength, absolutely, unless, of course, I need more strength at work or more strength with my family or more strength to try and achieve that goal or more strength to get that car or that truck. But sure, I love God, absolutely. I I love Him. Some of you that were here last week spent some time actually thinking and hearing God on that particular Scripture. Jesus says that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he's not done yet. Then he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Modern translation for followers of Jesus, this is it for us. This is it for us. Now be careful, don't forget everything else we've talked about up to this point, that God has selected where everyone should live. That means you and the people that God handpicked to be around you for one purpose, that we should all seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him even though He's not far away from any of it. That's it. Love God, love neighbors. The big two straight from Jesus. And some of you are already going happy with the first one. Don't even think about going there on the second one. Some of you are already thinking, I love everyone. I love the whole world. Why do I need to love my neighbor? Just in case you're wondering, Jesus could have picked a lot of words. He could have said coworker. He could have said acquaintance. He could have said your best friend. He didn't. He actually used the word neighbor. Why do I need to love my neighbor? They don't bring in their garbage cans for two whole days after it's been picked up. Why do I need to love my neighbor? They mow 13 inches over the property line at a different height than my mower. The nerve of some people. Or they don't mow their lawn at all. Why do I need to love them? They party all of the time. And the last time I complained, they cussed me out across the fence. I mean, I love loving God. That's incredible. And I will do that to the best of my ability. But why in the world did Jesus have to include them? He did. I triple-checked it this week. It's there, and I can't get around it. And I know there's some of us that are just thinking, Grant, because seriously, really, love your neighbor, that's what we're going to talk about? Come on, let's, let's talk about some deep stuff. Let's, let's go deep. I'll tell you what, when we have 100% obedience to the two greatest commands, then we'll graduate and move on to something else. Amen. Hmm. So here's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to, I I know I can't do this. I can't strong arm you into doing something. In fact, I can't even preach this with the level of force and tenacity that I normally would undertake. Instead, I can't even go like this because when I do that, I got one finger pointing at you and three back at me. And God's been working on my heart in this area to the point of unbelievable spiritual pain at times. So instead, I I would love to submit some things to you for your consideration. I would love to invite you into a journey to simply process and think and talk about something that seems so unbelievably elementary and yet so unbelievably neglected. So let me just ask, ask them, I'd like to submit to you some questions. And I'd like to invite you to summon up some courage and come along with me. But let's start with a simple question. Do I love God? Do I really? Asking myself, is Jesus my all-consuming passion? Does Jesus get my best time, my total attention, my undistracted focus? Does Jesus get the best of me always? In worship, in work, in service, is Jesus the object of my affection? Does Jesus come first in my service, my priorities, my obedience? I ask those questions of like, is anybody else squirming at all besides me? Can I actually look at myself in the mirror and say, yes, I love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength? Everything in my life is about Jesus. If I'm going to be honest, I'd. Not yet. About the second one: Do I love my neighbor like I love myself? And I'm going to remind you, I, I, I double-checked. It says exact that: Love your neighbor as your self. Now, a small confession: I love me. I do. I feed me. I care for me. I entertain me. I spoil me. I look after me. I mean, if you saw me on an org chart, there's one big box that says me and a little box that says everybody else. My world is all about Me, and so if I had to answer the question, do I love my neighbor, feed my neighbor, entertain my neighbor, spoil my neighbor, watch out for my neighbor, if I was honest, I'd have to say, not the way I look after me. Stick with me, because Saturday night, you got real quiet at this point, too. And whatever God may be saying to you about the fact that He specifically picked you to live where you live and specifically picked the people to live around you where they live. If you're feeling something in your heart, because some of you are like, I don't even know their name. Can you do me a favor right now? Embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God because this is what conviction does. Conviction always pushes us towards a godly change. I hope and pray some of us get convicted just a little bit about this because that's actually going to move us towards Jesus. The opposite of conviction is condemnation. don't let the enemy do that to you right now because condemnation will always lead you to a place of shame, all right? Embrace conviction, resist condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just come back to this place where Jesus said, this is it for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So when you look at them, Question number three, do I take Jesus seriously? Like when he says that, do I see that as a biblical command that I should obey, or do I see that as a polite suggestion that I can find a loophole for if I work hard enough? Because I already know, just in dialoguing with people about this particular idea, the first thing we start doing, we start looking for loopholes. I'm going to tell you why I'm the grand exception and why I don't need to have anything to do with this whatsoever. So thank you very much, preacher man. Mind your own business and walk away. I get it. And if you're thinking loopholes right now, you need to come back next week. We're going to talk about that because I've already made all the excuses. Do I take Jesus seriously? Let's go a little deeper and say it another way. Do I love Jesus seriously? I read something to you after we finished singing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I read to you from John chapter 14, where the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commands. And the two greatest, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's put it all together for just a second. If Jesus was here pulling all of these pieces together, I believe he would say, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. And I commanded you to love me and love your neighbor as yourself. And I selected both where you live and the neighbors who live next to you because somehow supernaturally, if this all goes together, people will seek me. Perhaps even reach out to me and find me, even though I am not far from any of you. So here's your homework for this week. Here's your homework. Pay attention. Okay, here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to turn this into a big campaign Where we're going to try and create allegiances with the people who live next to us so that we can come and have a great big arena event where we pull people together and bring in some Christian superstar. Even though I think that has some value at different places at different times, we're not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to do this. Please don't get weird in the next week. (laughs) Because I'm going to tell you something that I believe from the deepest part of my heart. When love becomes a strategy, it's not love. Okay? Okay. It's not love. This is not a campaign. This is not the newest idea. This is not something that I'm trying to capture your heart so that you can go and do something. I'm no, I'm this is all I'm going to ask you to do this week. Just pay attention. Who did the supernatural, all-sovereign God put next to you, whether it's on a street, in a dorm, on an acreage, in an apartment block? Who did God put there? And pay attention to them. When they pull their garbage can out, do they look like they've got the weight of the world on their shoulders? Maybe they do. What is their name? Do they have kids? Do they hit their garage door opener in the morning, zip out, and come back again at 5.30 every single night, and the garage door is closed before they even get out of the car? Just pay attention. Do they hide around the corner from you if they see you at the mailbox and wait until you're safely back in your house before they dare venture out to their mailbox? Are they filled with joy? Are they laughing? Are they alone? Or do they always have somebody with them? Just pay attention. That's it. Don't do anything else. Just pay attention attention, because maybe, maybe, it's simply the beginning of love God, love others, and love others to God. I know, because I heard this last night amongst people. For some of you, you're just like, really? Like, this is just so elementary. It's so remedial. I'll remind you again, unless you're 100% obedient to both of the greatest commands, I think we all have a few things to learn about this. And maybe, maybe this is God's heart for us to love the 200,000 people in this county, who don't love Jesus yet. So without apology, we're going back to the basics. I think it's wise. Years ago, Vince Lombardi, one of the most famous coaches in football history, guided a group of professional football athletes to within seconds of winning the Super Bowl. They were so close and they lost. On the opening day of training camp, the next year, Vince Lombardi gathered together a group of professional football players who had come within seconds of capturing the Super Bowl, which by the way, uh, no, anyway, forget it. <laughs> we'll be doing a series on disappointment at some level, I'm just going to say. It's just... But he welcomed a group of professionally trained football athletes with these words on the opening day of training camp, holding up a piece of pigskin. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. Christ the King, this is Jesus, and this is your neighbor. And Jesus said... Loving him and loving your neighbor were the top two priorities of anyone who dares to call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. However you picture Jesus, I'd like for you to do that in just a moment. Then alongside of him, I'd love for you to add a slideshow in your brain of the people who happen to live around you in your dorm, your apartment block, your condo association, or your home. Maybe that's the first step in just paying attention. Because I know this to be true. If I don't see my neighbors as Jesus sees them, I'm never going to love them like Jesus loves them. So this week, let's just see them. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that as we picture you and all that you encompass, God, I pray that right now you would allow us to have your eyes to truly see. Pay attention to the people that you, as the sovereign God of the universe, put right around us in the closest small geographic circle that we know. God, as the faces just run through our minds, I ask, Jesus, would you help us see them? Because if we don't see them like you see them, we're never going to love them like you love them. So God, we we ask right now. God, forgive us for not doing this well. Lord, I know there are exceptions. There are people in this room who've taken these commandments so seriously and they've been so obedient. And God, I thank you for their example. But God, for the rest of us who maybe have just been too busy, too consumed, distracted. God, we come back to the greatest commandments that you gave us. And if we've neglected them before, God, forgive us, but allow them to sit deeply in our hearts right in this moment. God, our dream is that people might seek you and perhaps reach out to you and find you, even though you're not far from any of us. But God, would you somehow teach us what it really means to be obedient to the two greatest commandments because God we want to love you with all of our heart with all of our soul with all of our mind with all of our strength and God we want to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves so Lord help us in that I pray Give us good courage. May we see them this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again for watching. We're so glad you accessed this content online. I want to encourage you again to make sure you get connected in biblical community wherever you are. If you'd like to get more information about Christ the King Church, if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or if you'd like to give online, we'd encourage you to go to CTK. Dot Church, we hope to see you again really soon.